Introduction of Stories from Le Mort d'Arthur and the Mabinogion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stories from Le Mort d'Arthur and the Mabinogion. Retold by Beatrice Clay. Introduction. Among the stories of the worldwide renown, not the least hearing are those that have gathered about the names of national heroes. The Enaid, the Nibelungenlied, the Chanson de Roland, the Mort de Arthur. They are not history, but they have been as national anthems to the races, and their magic is not yet dead. In olden times, our forefathers used to say that the world had seen nine great heroes, three heathen, three Jewish, and three Christian. Among the Christian heroes was British Arthur, and of none is the fame greater. Even to the present day, his name lingers in many widely distant places. In the peninsula of Gower, a huge slab of rock propped up on eleven short pillars, is still called Arthur's Stone. The lofty ridge which looks down upon Edinburgh bears the name of Arthur's seat, and, strangest perhaps of all, in the Franciscan church of Faraway Innsbruck, the finest of the ten statues of ancestors guarding the tomb of Emperor Maximilian I, is that of King Arthur. There is hardly a country in Europe without its tales of the warrior king, and yet, of any real Arthur history tells us little, and that little describes not the knightly conqueror, but the king of a broken people, struggling for very life. More than fifteen centuries ago, this country, now called England, was inhabited by a Celtic race known as the Britons, a warlike people divided into numerous tribes constantly at war with each other. But in the first century of the Christian era, they were conquered by the Romans, who added Britain to their vast empire, and held it against attacks from without and rebellions from within, by stationing legions or troops of soldiers in strongly fortified places all over the country. Now, from their conquerors, the Britons learned many useful arts, to read and to write, to build houses and to make roads, but at the same time, they unlearned some of their own virtues and, among others, how to think and act for themselves. For the Romans never allowed a Briton any real part in the government of his own country, and if he wished to become a soldier, he was sent away from Britain to serve with a legion stationed in some far distant part of the empire. Thus it came about that when, in the 5th century, the Romans withdrew from Britain to defend Rome itself from invading hordes of savages. The unhappy Britons had forgotten how to govern and how to defend themselves, and fell an easy prey to the many enemies, waiting to pounce on their defenseless country. Picts from Scotland invaded the north, and Scots from Ireland plundered the west. Worst of all, the heathen Angles and Saxons pouring across the seas from their homes in the Elb country wasted the land with fire and sword. Many of the Britons were slain, those who escaped sought refuge in the mountainous parts of the west from Cornwall to the Firth of Clyde. 
there forgetting to some extent their quarrels they took the name of simray which means the brethren though the english unable to understand their language spoke of them contemptuously as the welsh or the strangers for a long time the struggle went on between the two races and nowhere mere fire sleep then in the southwest where the invaders set up the kingdom of wessex but at last there aroused among the britons a great chieftain called arthur the old histories speak of him as emperor and he seems to have been obeyed by all the britons perhaps therefore he had succeeded to the position of the roman official known as the comes britanni whose duty it was to hasten to the aid of the local governors in defending any part of the britain where danger threatened at all events under his leadership the oppressed people defeated the saxons in a desperate fight at mons badonicus perhaps the little place in the dorsetshire known as bradbury or it may be bath itself which is still called baden by the welsh after that victory history has little to say about arthur the stories tell that he was killed in a great battle in the west but nowadays the wisest historians think it more probable that he met his death in a conflict near the river forth and so in history arthur the hero of such a mass of romantic story is little more than a name and it is hardly possible to explain how he attained to such renown as the hero of marvellous and sometimes magical feats unless on the superstition that he became confused with some legendary hero have god have men whose fame he added to his own perhaps not the least marvel about him is that he who was the hero of the britons should have become the national hero of the english race that he spent his life in fighting yet that is what did happen though not till long afterwards when the victorious english in their turn bend before their conquering kinsmen the normans now in the reign of the third norman king henry i there lived a certain welsh priest known as geoffrey of monmouth geoffrey seems to have been much about the court and perhaps it was the norman love of stories that first made him think of writing his history of the british kings a wonderful tale he told of all the british kings from the time that brought the trojans settled in the country and called it after himself britain for geoffrey's book was history only in name what he tells us is that he was given an ancient chronicle found in brittany and was asked to translate it from welsh into the better known language latin it is hardly likely however that geoffrey himself expected his statement to be taken quite seriously even in his own day not everyone believed in him for a certain yorkshire monk declared that the historian had aligned saucily and shamelessly and some years later gerald the welshman tells of a man who had intercourse with devils from whose sway however he could be freed if a bible were placed upon his breast whereas he was completely under their control if geoffrey's history were laid upon him just because the book was so full of lies 
It is quite certain that Geoffrey did not write history, but he did make a capital story, partly by collecting legends about British heroes, partly by inventing stories of his own. So that though he is not entitled to fame as an historian, he may claim to rank high as a romantic storyteller who set a fashion destined to last for some three centuries. So popular was his book that, not only in England, but in an even greater degree, on the continent, writers soon at work collecting and making more stories about the greatest of his kings, Arthur. By some, it is thought that the Normans took such delight in the knightly deeds of Geoffrey's heroes that they spread the story in France when they visited their homes in Normandy. Moreover, they were in a good position to learn other tales of their favorite knights, for Normandy bordered on the Brittany, the home of the Bretons who, being of the same race as the Welsh, honored the same heroes in their legends. So in return for Geoffrey's tales, Bretons' stories perhaps found their way into England, at all events, marvelous romances of King Arthur and his round table were soon being told in England, in France, in Germany, and in Italy. Now, to some it may seem strange that storytellers should care to weave their stories so constantly about the same personages. Strange, too, that they should invent stories about men and women who were believed actually to have existed. But it must be remembered that in those early days, very few could read and write, and that before printing was invented, books were so scarce that four or five constituted quite a library. Those who knew how to read and were so fortunate as to have books read them again and again. For the rest, though kings and great nobles might have poets attached to their courts, the majority depended for their amusement on the professional storyteller. In the long winter evening, no one was more welcome than the wandering minstrel. He might be the knightly troubadour who, accompanied by a jongler to play his accompaniments, wandered from place to place out of sheer love of his art and of adventure. More often, however, the minstrel made storytelling his trade and bounty of his audience, be it in castle, marketplace, or inn. Most commonly, the narratives took the form of long rhyming poems. Not because the people in those days were so poetical, indeed, some of these poems would be thought in present times very dreary, doddrill, but because a rhyme is easier to remember than prose. Storytellers had generally much the same stock-in-trade stories of Arthur, Charlemagne, Sir Guy of Warwick, Sir Beavis of Southampton, and so on. If a minstrel had skill of his own, he would invent some new episode, and so perhaps turn a compliment to his patron by introducing the exploit of an ancestor at the same time that he made his story last longer. People did not weary of hearing the same tales over and over again, any more than little children get tired of nursery rhymes or their elders turn away from the punch and judy, though the same little play has been performed for centuries. As for inventing stories about real people that may well have seemed permissible in an age where historians recorded mere hearsay as actual fact, Richard III perhaps had one shoulder higher than the other, but within a few years of his death, grave historians had represented him as a hutchback deformity. 
The romances connected with King Arthur and his knights went on steadily growing in number until the 15th century. Of them, some have survived to the present day, but undoubtedly many have been lost. Then, in the latter half of the 15th century, the most famous of all, the Arthurian stories, was given to the world in Sir Thomas Mallory's Morte de Arthur. By good luck, the great printer who made it one of his first works has left an account of the circumstances that led to its production. In the reign of Edward IV, William Caxton set up his printing press, the first in England, in the precincts of Westminster Abbey. There he was visited, as he himself relates, by many noble and diverse gentlemen, demanding why he had not printed the noble history of the Saint Grail and of the most renowned Christian king, Arthur. To please them, and because he himself loved chivalry, Kexton printed Sir Thomas Mallory's story, in which all that is best in the many Arthurian romances is woven into one grand narrative. Since then, in our own days, the story of Arthur and his knights has been told in beautiful verse by Lord Tennyson, but for the originals of some of his poems it would be useless to look in Mallory. The story of Geraint and Enid, Tennyson derived from a very interesting collection of translations of ancient Welsh stories made by Lady Charlotte Guest and by her called Mabinogion. Footnote meaning the apprentices of the bards, and a footnote. Although not all Welsh scholars would consider the name quite accurate. And now it is time to say something about the stories themselves. The Arthur of history was engaged in a lifelong struggle with an enemy that threatened to rob his people of home, of country, and of freedom. In the stories, the king and his knights, like Richard Cour de Lyon, sought adventure for adventure's sake, or, as in the case for Sir Perdur, took fantastic vows for the love of a lady. The knights of the round table are sheeted from head to foot in plate armor, although the real Arthur's warriors probably had only shirts of mail and shields with which to ward off the blows of the enemy. They live in moated castles instead of in holes of wood, and they are more often engaged in tournaments than in struggles with the heathen. In fact, those who wrote the stories represented their heroes as living such lives as they themselves led. Just in the same way Dutch painters used to represent the shepherds in the Bible story as Dutch peasants, just so David Garrick, the great actor of the 18th century, used to act the part of a Roman in his own full-bottomed wig and wide-skirted coat. It must not be forgotten that, in those faraway days when there were few who could even read or write, there was little that, in their ignorance, people were not prepared to believe. Stories of marvels and magic that would deceive no one now were then eagerly accepted as truth. Those were the days wherein philosophers expected to discover the elixir of life, when doctors consulted the stars in treating their patients, when a noble of the royal blood, such as Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, could fall into disgrace because his wife was accused of trying to compass the king's death by melting a wax image of him before a slow fire. Of all the stories, perhaps the most mystical is that of the quest of the Holy Grail, and it has features peculiar to itself. 
nuns take the place of fair ladies there are hermitages instead of castles and the knights themselves if they do not die become monks or hermits the reason for this change in scene and character is that this is a romance in which the church was trying to teach men by means of a tale such as they loved the lesson of devotion and purity of heart the story sprang from certain legends which had grown up about the name of joseph of arthimathia it was related that when our lord was crucified joseph caught in a dish or vessel the blood which flowed from his wounded side in later years the pious jew left his home and taking with him the precious vessel sailed away on unknown seas until he came to the land of britain in that country he landed and at glastonbury he built himself a hermitage where he treasured the sacred dish which came to be known as the saint grail after joseph's death the world grew more wicked and so the holy grail disappeared from the sight of sinful men although from time to time the vision of it was granted as in the story to the pure in heart in later days legend said that where joseph's hermitage had stood there grew up the famous monastery of glastonbury and it came to have a special importance of its own in the arthurian romans in the reign of henry the second by the king's orders the monks of glastonbury made search for the grave of king arthur and in due time they announced that they had found it nine feet below the soil the coffin covered with a stone in which inlaid a leaden cross bearing his inscription hic iace sepultus inclitus arex arthurius in insula avalonia some however suggested that the monks less honest than anxious to please the masterful king had first placed the stone in position and then found it one more feature of the tales remains to be mentioned their geography there is no atlas that will make it plain in all cases and this is hardly wonderful for so little was known of this subject that even in the reign of henry the eighth the learned lord berners was quite satisfied that his hero should journey to babylon by the way of the nile some of the places mentioned in the stories are of course familiar and others less well known can with a little care be traced but to identify all is not possible carlion where king arthur so often held his court still bears the same name though its glory has sorely shrank since the days when it had a bishop of its own camelot where stood the marvellous palace built for the king by merlin is perhaps the village of queen's camel in somersetshire if it is borne in mind that the french call wales pays de gal it is not difficult to see that north gallus may well be north wales gore is the peninsula of gower lyon probably the land southwest of cornwall now sunk beneath the sea and avalonia was the name given to one of the many small islands on the once marshy low-lying shore of the somersetshire which became afterwards better known as glastonbury happily it is neither on their history nor on their geography that the tales depend for their interest as long as a story of adventure thrills as long as gentleness courtesy and consideration for the weak excite respect so long will be read the tales of the brave times Quote, when every morning brought a noble chance and every chance brought out a noble night's end of, quote. End of the introduction 
Read by Anna Nomoska.